What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hi, this is Steve. Entering the world of Elliot Kazan's On the Waterfront is like journeying into the heart of the American experience. It's not just about dock workers and organized crime, but about unions who, instead of helping the little guy, are keeping him down. It's about the Catholic Church living up to its ideals and families just trying to keep their heads above water. But On the Waterfront is more than that. It's about Hollywood finally turning its lens away from a brightly polished and perfectly constructed fiction and towards the real America with real violence, crime, passion, and most of all, simple human living. On the Waterfront is also the crest of a new wave of acting, which had its origins in Stanislavski and the group theater, through the foundations of the actor studio, and finally transforming Broadway with shattering productions of A Streetcar Named Desire and Death of a Salesman. And of course, there is director Elia Kazan, whose passion, daring, and unapologetic ego brings us not only some of the greatest films ever made, but also from the Communist Party of the 30s to the House Un-American Activities Committee and the Blacklist of the 50s. And with each layer we unravel of this groundbreaking and powerful film, we realize there will always be more to learn, discuss, argue about, and discover. So, if you haven't seen On the Waterfront, you owe it to yourself as a cinephile to go down to cinephiles.net where you can buy or stream it along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. Then come back on Friday to hear John and I discuss one of his favorite films and mine, Elliot Kazan's brilliant, passionate, and powerful On the Waterfront. Edie, 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 time and faith. Remember, time and faith are great healers. Father, my brother is dead, and you talk about time and faith. My brother was the best kid in the neighborhood, and everybody said so. I'm in the church if you need me. You're in the church if I need you. Did you ever hear of a saint hiding in a church? I want to know who killed my brother! And welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hey, everyone. This is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host over at Collider, uh, voiceover artist as well, and uh, yeah, co-host of uh, The Geek Buddies, The Top Ten Show, and a proud host of The Deep Cut. Um, yeah, that's my life. That's my life, Steve. Your life is sitting, talking on mics. Yeah, this is why I'm getting fatter, because I'm just sitting on my ass all the time. But I'm working hard. I'm just sitting on my ass all the time. You're doing mental work, (laughs) vocal work. Absolutely, yeah. Um, And the film we're talking about today, do you want to say what you just said off mic? Yeah, this may be my favorite film that we've talked about since Citizen Kane. On the Waterfront has a very, very special place in my heart, and I I tweeted about, uh, as I tweeted to Steve, this uh, there may be some emotional moments for me as we talk about this film because there's something about Brando's performance. There's something about what he symbolizes here. There's something about this fighting the corrupt system, um, having your family betray you. There's so much involved in this film that always affects me and unsettles me. And of course, the relationship with Eva Marie Saint as well, which is very beautiful. So there's so much about this film that I absolutely love. That it's funny I never put it in my top ten films yet. It's one of the most emotional journeys I take in a film whenever I watch it. Um, 
So, so as, as everyone knows, you know, I think both of us try to bring our A game to every single episode we do. Right. We take every single one seriously. I certainly always try to prepare and study and be very clear on what we're trying to do with each film. And, yeah. and certainly like we recently did A Nightmare on Elm Street or The General or even a film like The Third Man. And yeah. I definitely work hard. You do. But there's some films that are different. And there's some films where I actually get scared. You know, right. like, are, are we going to be able to do justice to this film? Like, the, the, the last two that I felt this way were Civil War, okay. Ken Burns, yeah, yeah, yeah. and Network. Like, those are, those are mm. films where I was like, all right, this is, we got to do this right. Yeah. And I felt so much pressure over the last week because there's so much here. There's so much, there's so much filmmaking here. Yeah. There's so much history here. It's, it's one of those, you know, like when we talked about things like Apocalypse Now, obviously when we talked about Citizen Kane yeah. or Lawrence of Arabia or, or Network being another one where that it's not just that the filmmaking is great. It's great. It's not just that the people involved, like Ilya Kazan and Brando, yeah. are not important. They are really important, but it's not just that. It's also that the themes and the politics and the emotional moments of this film are so profound. Yeah. And and wanting to do all of this justice is stresses me out. Well, it's you so, know, it's so funny because I always go, "Oh, we're in good hands." <laughs> Steve's Steve's got it. And, well, I've, and I don't think it, there's ever been an episode we've done where people have complained about your preparation or your research. So the fear may motivate you, but in the well, long run, you always seem to hit the mark. I, it, it's funny. I actually think that Ilya Kazan might have said something about, about – which is true. I've heard a lot of people say this, is that if you're not scared, then there's a problem. Absolutely. You know? I'm scared before every big Schmodown match. Yeah. It's, it's motivation. It's fuel. Yeah. Before every interview I do – on the deep cut, I'm super scared. I'm hoping I get it right. So I get it. And one of the other things, you know, like mm. there, there are all sorts of ways of judging where a film sits in the in the firmament mm. of movies. This one of them is the AFA, AFI Top 100. This is number eight. Yeah. So this is, you know, we've done a few out of the top ten. I know Lawrence is there, obviously, Citizen Kane, Vertigo, um, Casablanca is w way up there. And I think, you know, we're starting to round out that top ten now. Yeah. Um, the only one I think we're never going to do is Gone with the Wind. Right. We haven't done Schindler's List. I know that's in that top ten. So is yeah. Godfather. And Godfather. Yeah. Well, this is, you know <laughs> – it's gonna come. It's gonna it's, come. I think it's coming next year. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I think I, I, I maybe we should make a. Should, can we make a solemn promise? Yeah, that 2020 we will get to Godfather. I think maybe we should have two months, and by that I mean uh, one month where we dedicate, like we did last year. We always take one month and really explore a filmmaker and a couple other films. But then maybe we need to add a second month where we explore a Godfather one, one and two. two over four yeah. weeks. Yeah. And maybe we talk about three. Only as a side. Yeah, Only I as mean, a Patreon, I, yeah. maybe a patron conversation for about five minutes. Well, speaking of Patreon, <laughs> can I tell you something that shocked me? Please. As I always do, I you know one of the main reasons we pick our films is to is to to fulfill the picks of our Patreon fans, patreon.com slash the cinephiles. They're incredible supporters. Yes. We appreciate everything they do. And so naturally I look to see who picked on the waterfront. Nobody. Wow. This is not a Patreon pick. Okay. I was shocked. That we didn't have anyone picking. You should look up. again because I think there's a John Roca there who <laughs> suggested this for a Patreon. <laughs> as a, as a well, has John, is, are his payments up to date? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I hope so. <laughs> My God, yes. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask this question. I, how did you first come to this film? I think if I remember correctly, I came to it uh, right in that place of time where I was – devouring film in my uh, late teens, uh, early 20s, 
um, when I was just really obsessed with seeing everything. And I remember renting it on VHS and bringing it home and watching it. And I watched it three times back to back to back. Wow. Because there was something about Brando that spoke to me um, instinctively. I was the bruised guy who feels stupid amongst everyone else. I was the guy who really wanted to find the sweet, tender love of his life. I was the guy that felt looked over or didn't feel like he had the connection with his family that he was hoping to have. I was the guy that felt like he was always up against everyone else and that everyone else, there was this like just the system that I couldn't um, overcome or I had to fight against. And I, I, I always, I just there was something about it that just really spoke to how I saw myself at the time and at times how I still see myself honestly no matter what I do um and it was just an incredible performance and I ached for him uh as I saw a version of myself on the screen it, it it's interesting I don't know how to put this the right mm. way. It's interesting to me the ways that you and I are very similar and there's mm. a whole set of them and the ways in which you and I are very different mm. and the ways that we evolved you know, like on different planets in a whole bunch of ways. Because <laughs> I saw it probably exactly the same time, rented it on VHS at that time in college when I was starting to become a cinephile. Yeah. And it didn't affect me that way. Mm. Because I don't think, I don't know if it's that I didn't have the emotional maturity or I didn't, but I think it's not that. I think it's more, I was not in touch with my emotions. And mm. I was so sure of myself at that age. You know, I was really cocky as a as a college kid. Mm. I was just sure everything was going to go right for me. And I think it took me getting the shit kicked out of me in my post-film school trying to get ahead in Hollywood and failing and failing and failing. And that opened up these big, painful truths about myself yeah. that then coming back to this movie in my 30s I mean I liked it when I saw sure, it sure. but I didn't go like oh my god right. and then coming back in my 30s where I was I wasn't capable of seeing all that depth mm -hmm. when I was younger I was capable of watching a whole bunch of other kinds of films but this is so raw and sensitive and subtle and painful and and I don't think I was mature enough to deal with it then. Mm. And now I look at it and go, oh my God, how did I not see what a profound movie this is? Yeah. 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 Um I want to talk this is our first Ilya Kazan film. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which is sort of and it's shocking to there's still a whole bunch we haven't even hit yet. Yeah. Which is kind of amazing. And and he is a fascinating character. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time doing some biography on him. Uh, he's born in Turkey of uh, Greek parentage, lived in Constantinople, and immigrated to the US when he was four years old in uh, nineteen thirteen. And what I kept thinking as I was hearing about his biography was it kept reminding me of another filmmaker we talked about, which is Frank Capra. Mm. Um, even though Frank Capra was actually born in the U.S., not an immigrant, but a child of immigrants whose family had come to the U.S. maybe a year or two before he was born. And they, they both had these strong, powerful drives to prove themselves in America. And they both have this tremendous love of America mm. as immigrants do in this way that is so – powerful and powerfully comes across in so many of his films. And uh, his father wanted him to go into the carpet business, mm -hmm. which is his business. And he went off to Williams College and uh, didn't want to go in the carpet business. And he worked his way through schools, washing dishes, waiting tables, still managed to graduate top near the top of his class, cum laude, went off to Yale School of Drama, and there he got the nickname of Gadge hmm. for Gadget. 
because he was always the guy that could get things done. If the huh. thing was broken, he knew how to fix it. He could do everything. And so – and he was, you know, a small guy and, and you know, from immigrant stock and maybe with the other kids that are at these liberal arts colleges mm-hmm. and at Yale, maybe he looked pretty different from them. And so he has this strange relationship with this nickname because this nickname follows him into the group theater and all of the people that really knew him, including Brando, Carl Malden, they all called him Gadge. And yeah. I think he loved that nickname and I think he hated it too because he hated not being the guy in charge. You know, he's always the scrappy up-and-comer in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You know, he's always got this guy. Uh, I read his I read his autobiography years ago. Yeah. I wish I had I wish I had had the energy to reread it now for this, <laughs> but it's a big damn book. It is a huge and, book. And the thing about that autobiography, and it's autobiography is always so interesting, not because they're always so accurate, because sometimes they're not, right. but because you get a feeling. Yeah. For the story that the person is trying to tell about himself. And I'll tell you, because Zan's got a chip on his shoulder. Mm-hmm. You know, he is – he wants you to – he wants to prove something about who he is. Because Zan's a scrapper. Oh, yeah. Capra's a, Capra's a boxer. Right. Because Zan's a scrapper. And it comes through – and, of course, his life story and what happens with him, uh, which I, I don't know how much you're going to touch upon it. but We're going to get into it. To, we're going right? to have to get into it. Um, but, yeah. You, That's what I'm saying. There's so much about this film. There is. There's a documentary about him, too, that I think Scorsese produced have, or whatever. He directed it. He directed I've never it. seen it. It's an incredible doc. I've seen it a few times. But you, it radiates how much of a scrapper he views himself as, how much of a chip on his shoulder there is, even in the interviews, even when he's talking about his films, there is this desire to fight. And yeah. it's just right there it on the surface. Something. Yeah, constantly yeah. on the surface. Yeah. He uh, he comes to New York in 1932 and hooks up with the group theater. Mm. I don't think we've actually talked about the group theater mm. on the cinephiles. This is for those of you who are interested in this world of acting and of art in the United States. The group, the- the group theater is one of the most important seminal moments in the history of acting in the United States and really the history of world acting yeah. because this is under the Works Prog- Progress Administration where they were giving money to build dams and roads and, and, and change the whole country to keep the country working during the Depression. They also gave money to artists and yeah. writers and actors and directors and the group Group theater working under that is formed, and the two people in charge are Lee Strasberg and Harold Clerman. And also in the group theater, and for those of you who are actors, you all know these names, Stella Adler, uh, Sandy Meisner, mm-hmm. Clifford Odets, the great playwright. There's also people that end up at the group theater like Sidney Lumet, all sorts of actors that you've heard about. And this is where this incredible moment in history where through Lee Strasberg and Harold Clerman, they bring the works and ideas of Stanislavski to the United States. And this is the formation of what comes to be known as the method. Yeah, Method acting begins right here in this moment in the United States, in the group theater in 1932. And young Ilya Kazan, Gadge, has shown up and he is basically the youngest guy in the troupe mm. to work alongside of them. I mean, that's an amazing moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's, once again, here he is coming into a situation with all these incredible artists, and he probably feels lesser than. Yep. So he probably feels he has to work harder than them and pushes and pushes and pushes. Right. Strasberg said of him, uh, you have a talent for something, but it's certainly not acting. <laughs> well. And and he, but, and yet he acted. And yeah. so what they did, what, he, what did he do? He was the stage manager. Again, Gadget. Yeah. He's the guy who could get stuff done. Right. And they also let him act. Now, he acted a lot in the next 20 years um, or 15 probably. Yeah. Um, in fact, he even acted in 
One of the group theater's most famous productions, which is Clifford Odette's Waiting for Lefty. Mm. And for those of you who don't know, Waiting for Lefty is a fantastic one-act play, and it's about a bunch of taxi drivers who are deciding whether or not to go on strike. And they're all waiting for Lefty, who is the leader of this group, to show up. And each person comes in, and they have just these little vignettes, these little scenes, each one telling their story. It's a beautiful, beautiful play. And mm-hmm. at the end of the play, spoiler alert for a <laughs> 1930s play, uh, we find out that Lefty is dead, that yeah. he's been killed by the mob, essentially by the by the bosses running these cab rings. And one of the actors, which happened to be Ilya Kazan, mm-hmm. starts to yell, strike, 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 strike. And the whole cast takes it on. And here is the Hollywood, the, the, the Broadway legend, yeah. which I, from everything I've heard is true. They started to yell, strike on the stage. The audience joins in, starts to yell, strike. Strike. The audience stands up and the entire cast and theater, the entire audience marches out into into the streets of New York (laughs) chanting strike, strike, strike after seeing Clifford Odets waiting for Lefty with Elia Kazan leading the charge of yelling strike. I mean, I'm getting chills just thinking about this (laughs) moment in theater. A rebel rouser. A rebel rouser. Why wouldn't he be? Yeah. Well, and um, and again, we have to go back to this idea of the method. The Actors Studio is yeah. founded in 1947 by Ilya Kazan. Yeah, you know that's where this comes from. Do you want to explain the method, maybe to some people who I think, don't? Uh, let's let's go into it a little bit. So 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 the the basic idea. So the, the, here's the way I th- I think about it. First of all, there's a, thousands of styles of acting, thousands of ways yes. to approach material. There is no right way. And what I'm going to say right now, I'm going to divide this. This is what I do in my class. Mm -hmm. You're in my class now. And divide it into two basic sides, external and internal. And the external is sort of you're off in England. You're studying Shakespeare. You're learning to read the text. You're learning to move your body, to control your voice because those are instruments. You're learning the dialects. You're learning about props and clothing. And as you build the character from the outside, you learn all the outside stuff about the character and slowly but surely – you move to the inside. So you start with the external and you go to the internal. That's a very simplified version of, a, of, of one pole, one side of an approach. The Stanislavski method side is exactly the opposite, is that you start with you. Mm. Because everything that you do on stage must be true. You're not pretending to do a thing. You're feeling that thing mm. for real. And therefore, to do that, you must have those feelings inside you. So instead of just reading the text and creating a facade, you go – Okay, I have to play a scene where my, my father died. Well, what experience have I had that's like that? This is mm-hmm. called sense memory. I'm going to go back in time and think about, well, my, my father hasn't died, but I once had a good friend that died. How did I feel then? And explore that and try to make that feeling real so that when you're on stage and this thing is happening, yeah. that the feelings your experiences are real and that every moment that happens on stage is real. So if something gets knocked down or falls or something happens to the audience, well, that's real too. And you should be reacting to it. Just in the moment. Mm -hmm. So you go from this kind of presentational style of acting to this incredibly internal style of acting. And we're going to see that in this movie because this is a method acting movie. This is all people that came out of this tradition. One more thing we have to talk about is that in 1932, uh, Ilya Kazan along with a whole bunch of people in that group theater, not including Lee Strasberg and Harold Klerman, by the way, joined the Communist Party. Yeah. In 1934, Ilya Kazan was kicked out of the Communist Party. <laughs> he uh, didn't like – and he be- believed in – look, there's – in the 30s, in the Depression, the communist movement in the United States, the Red Movement, if you wanted to call it that, was powerful. 
a lot of artists and writers who believed in things like civil rights and saw a lot of corruption and the part of the capitalist system said, hey, this communist thing sounds pretty good. Ilya Kazan thought it sounded pretty good until they started trying to tell him what to do in the group theater. Mm -hmm. And he didn't like it. And he said, no, you can't tell me what to do. I'm an artist. I'm going to do what I want to do. And they put him on trial. <laughs> and they kicked him out of the Communist Party in yeah. 1934. Yeah. This something's going to come back. But in the 40s, he goes from being Gadge, the stage manager and the not very good actor, into becoming the greatest director in Broadway. Mm. His first play is Thornton Wilder's The Skin of Our Teeth, which is a huge hit, wins the Pulitzer Prize. It stars Tallulah Bankhead and Frederick March. So Gadge has become a big-time director. And then he moves on to the, in my opinion, the greatest plays in the classic era of Broadway, okay. Death of a Salesman and A Streetcar Named Desire. Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams. Death of a Salesman starring Lee J. Cobb. Oh, lovely J. Cobb. And, and A Streetcar Named Desire starring Marlon Brando. Uh, yeah. I mean this is – And Carl Malden. And Carl Malden. Yes. Absolutely. Yep. And this is the titanic shift when those method actors – that's in the, in, the, in the late 40s. When those method actors that started in the 30s suddenly explode onto the stage in the 40s. Yeah. And I'm telling you, if you talk to actors, there is before Brando and there's after Brando. <laughs> it's true. Brand, and Elliot Kazan is the guy who finds him. Yeah. Goes off to Hollywood. His first movie is A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which got a Academy Award nominations. Next, the second movie is Gentleman's Agreement. Have you seen Gentleman's Agreement? Yeah, Gregory Peck. Gregory Peck, uh, where he's a uh, he's a, a reporter masquerading mm -hmm. as a Jew, as a Jewish guy, yeah, as a Jew to look into anti-Semitism. Yep, yeah, it's a really good movie. It is. It's one of those forgotten classics, yeah. but it's a fantastic film. I think it's great. What's Eli, Eli Kazan doesn't like it. He's mm. it's not one of his favorites, despite the fact that he wins Best Director and it wins Best Picture. Yeah, second movie. Yep. Um, and why? And I think if you look at it, if you compare that to Streetcar and On the Waterfront, uh, Gentleman's Agreement is kind of straight up. It is. It's not gritty. It's right. not. It doesn't have that passion. It doesn't have that edge mm -hmm. that you expect from Kazan. But it is a really good movie. I liken it to Spartacus. Like you can't think that's a Kubrick movie, that's even a great though it's point. directed by Kubrick and really good and really good. It's straightforward, but yeah. it doesn't have the Kubrick nuances yeah. that you'll come later on yeah. with Kazan. Kazan's influences as well. Yeah. And then it's time for Streetcar Named Desire in 1951. Yeah, Stella! And, and again, Brando's performance. Uh, after my, that, my girlfriend is a thing for him at this time. He's, look, there's something about him. He's a sexy son of a bitch, man. He is, he is amazing yeah. to look at. Yeah. Well, and he has – this is the thing we're going to see. He has that mix of intense masculinity yeah. and intense vulnerability. Yeah, at the same time. In, in a way nobody – I don't think there's anybody ever in the history of film that has both of those going on in the same – at the same time yeah. at that level. The only person I've ever seen come close is Tom Hardy. That's the only person wow. I, I ever seen the, with the possibility. Um, but they don't, they're not roles for him like there were for Brando. There's no – Stanley Kowalski. There's no right. uh, 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 what we see here in, in uh, on the waterfront. There's none of that for him yet. Um, there's Viva Sabata, <laughs> right? Which I think I've seen, yeah. but I have no memory of it. With Anthony, him and is it Anthony Quinn who plays? I yeah, think I think so. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's one of the ones I could picture yeah. scenes, but yeah. I really have very little memory of it. Yeah, uh, and then on the waterfront. And then these really interesting – East of Eden, which is James Dean's first movie. Yep. He's the guy who brought James Dean because he loved unknown actors. Yep. Here's some of the people that he gave their start to. First films, James Dean, Andy Griffith in uh, Facing, Facing the, the crowd, crowd. Which we need to do. I think I think we should do that next year too because yep. there's a lot of stuff there. Yes, very topical stuff. <laughs> a lot of stuff. 
gave Warren Beatty his first movie mm. role in Splendor of the Gra- in the Grass. Right. Jack Palance, Lee Remick. Like, this is a guy who saw interesting people and wanted to put them in films. Lee Remick in, in a face in the crowd as well. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, yeah. And, and here's the thing. So this is one of the people who's known as an actor's director mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. He comes out of the origins of the actor's studio. I mean, this guy loves actors. Here's the thing he said. He said, when I talk to the actors, they begin to give me ideas and I grab them because the ideas they give me turn me on Mm. and that turns them on. I want the breath of life from them rather than the mechanical fulfillment of the movement which I asked for. Mm. I love actors. I used to be an actor for eight years, so I appreciate their job. I I liken it to – and I'll make a sports reference here. It's like a backup quarterback or a backup lineman or – football player who couldn't quite become a star but was really good at understanding the game becomes an incredible coach. Right. Bill Belichick, one of the greatest coaches we have now, who's currently second, third place in all-time wins ever, uh, he was a lineman. A backup lineman, right? You know, so it's just you just never know where your skills are supposed to be. And Strasburg was clearly right. Yeah, I think you're going to be something. It just ain't acting. Not an actor. <laughs> yeah, well, an actor. the thing too is that what's so interesting, and I'm sure you could, I couldn't tell you who these coaches are, yeah. but I know there's some coaches, maybe like a Bill Walsh or something, who have the 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 strategic perspective of the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then there's those other coaches who knows how to bring the most out of a particular player. Mm-hmm. Like someone who maybe didn't thrive anywhere else, and then this coach comes along and sees something in them, oh, yeah. knows how to do it. Certainly Belichick is that. Um, and that seems like what Kazan can do, mm-hmm. is he sees that thing in the actor. And the other thing, here's another quote from him that I like, uh, because it shows such perspective on himself, which is not a thing I always think of in terms of Kazan. He says, I don't have a great range. I'm no good with music or spectacles. The classics are beyond me. I'm a mediocre director except when a play or film touches a part of my life's experience. I do have courage, even some daring. I'm able to talk to actors to arouse them to better work. I have strong, even violent feelings. They and they are my assets. Mm. That says a lot about this guy. And he's a very self-aware guy to be able to say something like that about himself. Yeah. Um, I'll give you one more quote. This is from Brando. Yeah. He says, I've worked with many directors, some good, some fair, some terrible. Kazan was the best actor's director by far of any I've worked for. He was an arch manipulator of actors' feelings, and he was extraordinarily talented. Perhaps we will never see his like again. Coming from Brando. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. That's incredible uh, lines for him. And and, and this is the thing. We will talk about this at the end of the film, but uh, when we talk about its influences – but I'm telling you now, I don't think there's a 70s without Ilya Kazan. Oh, I think that's a fair point. Absolutely. I think the films we see, yes, they're inf- influenced by the French New mm-hmm. Wave. Yes, they're influenced by neorealism and all these other places and the 60s and all those things that happen. Yeah. But Kazan, man. Tell me anyone who's doing cons- who did consistently what Kazan did with his material at that time yep. that could rival what he was doing. They were all different uh, directors working at that time who were quite uh, – who were full of quality. But there, oh, yeah. was, there was a rawness, an animalistic rawness to what he was able to bring to the screen. And a realism and an artistry and mm-hmm. passion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a desire to, to destroy institutions. Yep. Right? To question uh, institutions. Well, that's that scrappy yep. fighter of guy course. you're talking about. And that's why I love he, him. Yeah. Um, a little bit of pre-production. Yep. Um, he wanted to do a movie with Arthur Miller. <laughs> I mean, he had worked with him on All My Sons and Death of a Salesman. They worked working together on a screenplay called The Hook mm. about the docks. Uh, they, he had written a screenplay. 
brought it to Harry Cohn over at Columbia. And Cohn didn't like these corrupt union guys. He said, let's turn them into communists. Communists are bad guys. It's the mid-50s. Mm, the Red Scare. And Arthur Miller said, nope. And they and it all fell apart. Mm. Um, there's also other reasons why Arthur Miller and Kazan's relationship maybe fell on hard times. Um, I'll tell you one. So here's one of the things that's funny about his book, by the mm -hmm. way. This is just a digression. But it relates to Arthur Miller. I think it's Arthur Miller. Is one of the things in Kazan's book is let's just say he was not overly faithful to his wives. He not only bragged about his constant conquest mm -hmm. of women, but he did it in a way that's just like, man, you got a little something to prove here. Yeah. I mean, it was right? it, it, like the you compensate for something? Compensating a little bit. And one of the ones he said, in addition to saying that he had slept with Marilyn Monroe many times, he says he slept with her. The night before she got married to – I cannot remember if it's Arthur Miller or Joe DiMaggio. Wow. Like literally the night before she comes to his apartment in tears, I don't know if I can go through with it. He has sex with her and then convinces her to marry the guy the next day. It's probably Arthur Miller. I think it's Arthur Miller. If it was Miller. DiMaggio, he'd be dead. Well, if, any, if they ever found out. Um, <laughs> Joey D. mastered New York. They would have found out. He's a powerful man. Yeah. Joey I mean but, but like the, the, the weird – Arrogance and neediness of mm. telling this story in your book, right? You know, it's like what? Well, it's like Esther, whether or not it's true. Well, Esther Williams did the same thing when she released her book, talk about all her conquests, and you're just like, this is why? Why? I mean, I, why? I don't understand. But obviously, with him, as we've said, we've said from the beginning of this podcast, he is a scrapper. He is the underdog. So for him. He is overcompensating for an incredible amount of insecurity he must feel within himself. And even the quotes about himself, I, I don't read the classics. I'm not the, the, right. I'm a mediocre director unless it's something that affects me emotionally or touches something within me. So he understands that about himself. So the conquest and then bragging about him, bragging about them kind of fits his psychological makeup, this idea, this need to be stroked for what he's done. Well, I'm going to say this again. It's trying to say this in the right way. Mm. But I certainly do not believe that you have to be fucked up or an asshole to be a great artist. Nope. I think there are plenty of people who are not fucked up and assholes who are great artists in all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. But what I do think is that who you are affects who you are as an artist. Is that what is the core, what is inside of you, what is your deep passion that is driving you affects the kind of art you make. Yeah. And I don't think that the person who is the stable, calm, you know, confident, doesn't have anything to prove guy makes on the waterfront or streetcar yeah, desire. Yeah, yeah. Might make other other great films, mm -hmm. but it doesn't make these films. Right, you got you know you got to have because and again you I think of myself in college, mm -hmm. I couldn't appreciate on the waterfront. How could I possibly make on the waterfront right. unless you felt those things? You can't make them. Mm -hmm. That's a basis of art. Um, so things with Arthur Miller fall apart. That's not going to happen. And then he finds out that Bud Schulberg, mm. who is a writer, comes from a Hollywood tradition, kind of fell out of favor with Hollywood, has also named names to the House on American Activities Committee, which is something we're going to get to as we yeah. talk about that Kazan also did. Yeah. He's been working on a project about the docks. And Kazan comes to him. They talk about the project. And he says, listen, why don't we join forces I'll give you the same deal I gave Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams, mm. which is that nothing will go into this project that you don't agree on. We're going to fight about things. We're going to talk about things. We're going to go over every single line. But if you don't agree and I don't agree, it doesn't go in the movie, mm. which is amazing for screenplays. Yeah. That's how it works in plays. In plays, the playwright is, you know, 
sacrosanct. Right. Not in screenplays. Yeah, that's where he comes from. That's where he comes from. Makes sense. Yeah. And they agree. Schulberg goes and lives a year in Hoboken, New Jersey Holy on the crap. docks. Really? Yep. A year on the docks. A year. I don't know. Maybe he went over to, you know, to the Palace Hotel back in New York a few times. <laughs> Every weekend. You know, <laughs> over to Sardi's or to, you know, one of those places. But, yeah, he was on the docks. And oh. this is the thing. And I, 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 if you haven't watched a lot of film history, I don't know if you can appreciate. There's never been a movie like On the Waterfront. Yeah. If you look at – there have been movies about people that didn't have a lot of money in Hollywood. Lots of them. But it was always through the veneer, you know. It was always through that rosy, glowing Hollywood look. It was a costume of poor clothes. It wasn't poor clothes. It was a set of someone's poor apartment. It wasn't a real poor apartment. It was the language that someone who'd never been to the docks would rake up about someone who speaks on the docks. That's not what this is. And a lot of that is because Bud Schulberg was there for a year. When you hear those people talk, when you see those faces, you see those clothes, that's the real deal. Yeah. Or is the real deal as Hollywood had ever gotten up to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so the movie is definitely based on some true stories. There definitely was corruption in the docks. Yeah, there was a guy named Anthony DiVincenzo who testified against the mob uh, in a real uh, uh, waterfront commission in Hoboken. <laughs> Uh, there was a real priest named Father John M. Corden. This guy sounds like a hero. Uh, I mean, seriously. Uh, like a guy who stood up against the mob under all sorts of death threats and fought and fought for years for the rights of the workers there. And all of this was built on this and they write the screenplay and Kazan thinks this might be one of the best things he's ever worked on. Can't get the money. Huh. No one wants to put money on this. Kazan's under contract with Zanuck over at Fox. And his response is, I don't want to do a movie about sweaty longshoremen. I want beautiful things. I want cinemascope. I want color. I don't want some black and white movie about this stuff. <laughs> turns it down. Everyone in Hollywood turns it down. Um, and then they find this guy, Sam Spiegel. Sam Spiegel. Sam Spiegel was not what would you call an A-list producer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sam Spiegel was maybe not even a B-list producer. He was kind of a con man, working man producer, just trying to get stuff made. They found him at a party really drunk. (laughs) Kazan and Schulberg, they pitched the movie to him. He says, tell me, bring me the script tomorrow morning. They find him in a hotel room, completely hungover, wet claws over his eyes. Can't, the room is too bright. Schulberg and Kazan come in and he says, I can't read it. Read me the screenplay. They read him the screenplay. (laughs) He says, I'll do it. And so he agrees to do it. And they say, listen, there's one thing. We have to shoot on location. And Spiegel thinks, sounds like it'll be cheaper. Great. We'll shoot on location. (laughs) That's how they get the money to make this thing. I'll save money on this one. Yeah. (laughs) You know who was originally cast to play Terry Malone? Uh, Shit, I don't remember. It's not bad. It's interesting. It's one of your favorite people of all time. It's not Orson. No. Charlton Heston? Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra. Hoboken's own Frank Sinatra. That's a bad choice. At they that had, time in his life, that's a bad choice. <laughs> they had a handshake deal. Yeah. Well, and it's like Sinatra Brando. I mean, there's just not Yeah. We can't you can't compare those Two things. Icons in different yeah. fields. But yeah. certainly. Well, and, and Sinatra can't bring what Brando does. And as we see, Brando cannot sing like Sinatra oh. in Guys and Dolls. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. By the way, I loved that movie, and I loved Brando in it when I was a kid. I really? watched it over and over and over yeah, again. You can't watch it now. It's no. terrible. No. no. I, I mean, I still like Sinatra. Sinatra's great in yeah. it. 
I like the movie, but Brando's not good. Look, be only it tonight. <laughs> it just doesn't work, man. It's terrible. It doesn't work, Steve. Do, do you know who the, originated that role on Broadway? It's entirely off the topic. No. Who? Robert Alda, Alan Alda's father. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, but the whole time they've made a deal with Brando. They have no thing on paper, just a handshake deal. He's come in and get costume footings. I mean, Sinatra. I'm sorry, with Sinatra. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Kazan wants Brando. Mm. Brings it to Brando. Brando says, I don't, I don't want to do that. Uh, Grace Kelly turns down the role of Edie. Oh, man. Um, she went, you, you know what she went off to make? Damn. She went off to make Rear Window. Rear Window, right? Yeah. Um, and so they bring in some actor studio original people. Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward come and do a screen test for Terry and Edie. Which, I mean, they're great. Yeah. Yeah. But again, but again, this is like, it's Brando. He's too pretty. Yeah. Paul Newman. I mean, Paul Newman's a great actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you think of him in The Hustler, that is a, you right. know, that is a role that is complicated and yeah. messed up and self-destructive. And right. I mean, he's Good point. Yeah. But point. he's not Brando. Nobody's Brando. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. It's the animalist. Yeah. It's the animalistic yeah. thing. Yeah. And then Brando reconsiders. He reads the script again. All right. And then he goes, okay. One, here's an interesting one. Another person you like, originally cast to play Charlie. Yeah. Lawrence Tierney. Oh, nice. He wanted too much money. Reservoir Dogs guy. Yep. Yeah. Um, and they went and filmed it in 36 days on location in Hoboken. Nothing had ever been done this way. I mean, yeah, we had filmed like on the town in New York. There are things that had been filmed sure, on sure, location, sure. but not like this on the docks of Hoboken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing like this. There's one more technical thing I want to talk to. I know we've gone like a ridiculously long yeah, time. This is the longest intro maybe we've done before. I, but, but I, like I said, took but this I think really there's a, seriously. You did, and there's a lot of great information you're spilling out. I love it. So uh, I need to talk about something totally technical, but it's mm-hmm. interesting to me in terms of film history, and that's aspect ratio. So it's what is the shape of the screen you're looking at? Yeah. And that all movies up until the late 40s, early 50s were four by three. So if you looked at Citizen Kane, if you looked at The General, the oldest film we've yeah. ever done, they have the same aspect ratio, which is they are whatever it is is three units tall to four units wide. It's a square slightly wider or a rectangle tangle slightly wider than it is tall. Then TV comes along, which is also four by three, and everybody starts staying home. And so they go, well, we need to have widescreen. And that's where we get the whole list of Cinemascope and Cinerama and Panavision and Panas, all these different things. And the easiest way to do it was rather than having different lenses and different projectors and all this stuff, was all you do is you take your 4 by 3 image and you cut the bottom off and the top off and you make it narrower and less tall. And that is what is most of our movies today, which is 185, which means Mm. for every uh, unit of length one high, it's 1.85 wide. Mm. And that's pretty close to 16 by 9, which is your TV. But a lot of theaters couldn't do that. They could only do 4 by 3 and some other theaters could only do 1.66, which is less wide. Mm. And so what they had to do back Back in this time, because you didn't know where it was going to play, was when they shot it, they had to make it look good for all three uh, aspect ratios. Wow. Yeah. So what happens is that the Boris Kaufman, who's the cinematographer, is looking through his lens, and he has a bunch of dotted lines that say, this is the 4 by 3 frame, this is the 166 frame, this is the 185 frame, and he had to look and make sure they're all good. Oh God. And they're all so, – so there isn't a correct aspect ratio yeah. for On the Waterfront. All three are technically correct. Yeah. I recommend 166. Okay. It's in the middle between the two. 185 cuts off a lot of tops and bottoms. One, four by three cuts off a lot of the sides. 166 seems like a good compromise okay. just so you all know. OK. We're at the movie. Well, thanks for listening to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into it. Let's do this thing. 
Man, Leonard Bernstein. Yeah. That score that hits you. And do you hear the West Side Story in it? Yeah, a little bit. Right there's on the edges. so many moments where it's so, there's a place for us. Is that this score is so powerful. Yeah. It is his first film score. It is his last film score. Mm. This is Leonard Bernstein's only score. Amazing. Uh, and we open up on this waterfront shot that looks like nothing else in film. Mm. Deep, dark blacks, cruise ship in the background, and some guys coming up from the docks. We see Lee J. Cobb, and then we see Brando. He looks up at this window with a light out, and he calls out to Joey. Joey! Joey! Well, we don't know what's going on. He's talking about birds, yeah. and maybe I have one of your birds. And, one of your birds, yeah. And Joey says, oh, okay. And, uh, you know, I, and Joey says a really interesting line. He says, I got to watch myself. Yeah. Which, when you're watching the movie the first time, you don't think anything of that. Right. But when you watch it a bunch, you're like, oh, Joey knows. Yeah. They're trying to kill him. And obviously you find out Terry knows, not that they're trying to kill him, but that they want to talk to him because he's setting him up to meet him up on the roof. Because Terry says, yeah, I'll meet you up on the roof. I'll give you this pigeon. And Joey says, okay. And Terry looks up and the camera tilts up and there are these two dark figures on the roof. And it is really ominous, ominous shot. The music is intense. And Terry doesn't bring that bird up to the roof. Just lets it go. He walks up to two guys who are two of the thuggiest looking of thugs. Yeah. Uh, and they say, you know, he says he's up on the roof. And he's like, yeah, it worked. And then we hear a scream. <laughs> and someone falls from the roof. Yeah. It is such a great opening of a film. You know, we're 30, 25, 30 seconds in, a minute in maybe. And something so shocking has happened. Yep. And the look on Brando's face when he sees that. Because you're right. That's not what he expected nope. to happen. No. But he knew something was going to happen. Right. Well, and this is one of my questions that I have throughout this film. Did How much did Terry know mm-hmm. about how bad things were? Mm-hmm. In other words, were they just lying to him or was he lying to himself? What do you mean how bad things were on the docks? Well, well, with like, let's just stay with Joey to start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he knew they were going to lean on him. Yeah. He knew maybe they're going to maybe they're going to rough him up a yeah, little. Yep, yep. Did he think that him getting killed was a possibility? Uh, I don't think he did. I don't think he 100 percent grasped that as a possibility because probably his brother came to him, Charlie, and yep. said, "Hey, you got to do this for the you know Johnny Friendly." Blah blah blah. And remember, as we find out later, when he has the conversation with his brother, Johnny Friendly and his brother have essentially controlled this dude's life. Oh yeah, since he became a boxer, and maybe even earlier than that, and so. When he's being told what to do, he gets to hide behind this idea that, oh, these guys are telling me what to do. These guys, if I just follow them, I don't have to think for myself. It isn't until Eva Marie Saint shows up and it isn't until this situation that causes Eva Marie Saint to show up in his life that he starts to question what he's been told his entire life. I agree with every single thing you said. Mm. I think everything you said is exactly right. The only hesitation I have Mm. is I think Terry's been turning off his brain. You know, I think right. he's seen that he knows people have died. Yeah. He knows it. And he has refused to look at that thing. Mm-hmm. And I think Joe and I think he had to know that it was a possibility that yeah. Joey was going to die. Joey said to him, I gotta watch myself. Right. Well, Terry knows why that is, because there are these guys after him who he knows are killers. Well, maybe he knew they were gonna rough him up. Maybe he didn't know they were gonna kill him. I think that he Well, of course we don't know, of All course, right. but right. I think that he 
was in denial about that possibility. Oh, yeah, that's fair. Um, and we see his reaction in yeah. this moment. I thought they were only going to rough him up. And then what do the guys do? They joke. He's one a bad kid, that Joey. A canary. Maybe he could sing, but he couldn't fly. <laughs> <laughs> and they say, oh, let, let's buy you a drink. And he goes, I'll be in later. And the shot of him as the realization of his part in this guy's mm. death. Again, this is that vulnerability. This yeah. is that power that Brando has that nobody else does. We're back at the body. The police have showed up. And there's Carl Malden. Yeah. What a great actor. One of the unsung ones, man. Yeah. Like people love Malden, but people don't love Malden. And people forget how many of these signature films he was a part of. Patton. Yep. This film. Streetcar Named Desire. Uh, what's the one with Eli Wallach uh, and uh, him, uh, Pretty Baby or whatever it's called? Uh, Baby Doll. Baby Doll. He has been part of so many of these incredible films before he was on the streets of San Francisco, mm-hmm. before he was the American Express guy. Yep. Like you go back and watch him in all these films and he never delivers a bad performance. Nope. And he always brings his own kind of spin on his beliefs in uh, the character. They're very strong. He never plays a character that's mealy-mouthed. His characters are always very strong in what they want to do. Um, he is Eli Kazan's most frequent collaborator. Yeah. He's in more movies of his than anybody else's. There was something that was said about Henry Fonda way, way back when we did 12 Angry Men. Mm. And what they said was, I think Lamette said, Henry Fonda is an incapable of being untruthful mm. on screen. I think the same is true of Malden. Yeah. I think there's not a moment where he doesn't seem authentic. Yeah. And all the way up to uh, – you watch The West Wing, right? Yep. When Carl Malden shows up on The right. West Wing. Right. And has that – go on YouTube right now yeah. and watch Carl Malden, Malden and Martin Sheen talk about capital punishment. And you know what he's playing in that scene? A priest. A priest, yeah. Yep. So he shows up and he's talking to the father and we're talking about, oh, maybe he fell off the roof. Maybe it was an accident. And the mom is going, that wasn't an accident. Yeah. She wants to fight. And what does dad want to do? Let's let it be. You got to let it be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, can you imagine your son has died yeah. minutes ago and you're already dealing with, uh, I, can't, I can't let these emotions out. This is, this is the dark life, yeah. right? This idea that death is always around the corner. Anybody who talks, the second anybody talks or anybody does something wrong against Johnny Friendly, There's a time clock on that person. Yep. And mom or dad or sister or brother has to accept it. I've been on the docks all my life, boy, and there's one thing I learned. You don't ask no questions. You don't answer no questions unless you want to wind up like that. And then there's Edie. Father, who'd want to kill Joey? Who'd want to kill Joey? Stay away from him. Stay away from him. Stay away from him. Edie, listen. Edie. Edie. Eva Marie Saint, also in her first film. Yes, I think she's the hero of this movie. Sure. You Certainly know. the most pure. There's, well, and, and nothing happens without her. Mm-hmm. There's literally this, – this ends right here at this moment if she's not there. And, and, and Malden, Father Barry, comes up to her and says – Edie. Edie, time and faith. Remember time and faith are great healers. Father, my brother is dead and you talk about time and faith. My brother was the best kid in the neighborhood and everybody said Edie, so. Listen, I, I'm in the church if you need me. And then she says – and I love this moment. You're in the church if I need you. Did you ever hear of a saint hiding in a church? And that is like, that is the moment that changes the movie. That question. Yeah. You know? And her desire, what she says. I want to know who killed my brother! 
watching it this time, Steve, what struck me is how much Carl Malden pisses me off. Uh, really? I, as a pre, uh, there is such a sanctimony to what he's doing oh, yeah. without also dialing in, right? It takes what's-his-face, as we see later on, to be like, how far are you willing to go, Father? How yeah. far are you going to go with this, right? And so you wonder where the limit is with him, but his desire to call everybody out on the table without also himself putting up uh, him putting himself up uh, is uh, uh, is at times a bit convenient, and so I like that as an aspect of the character. It I, makes you it constantly keeps you on your edge, it's on funny. the edge. My reaction to him is slightly different. I totally see what you're saying. Yeah. Is that he is he sees himself as superior on some level? Yes, you know, and protected by the church and that caller. Well, and that he is because there's a there's a class structure here. He is an educated man. Yeah. He's come to this place as a superior person who's supposed to lead them. And it's always an interesting thing when the outsider goes like, well, I should obviously be in charge. I mean, that's that's the the it's it's not that I think he does genuinely put himself on the line. Of course, of course. He knows that he could be killed at any time, but there's also he is not one of them. But yeah. he feels that he can tell them what to do. Right. You know. And it, honestly, rightly so. Because he does have the when we get there, he's going to have the words, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and, and and having the words is a powerful is a powerful thing to bring. We're back with Terry. He goes into the bar. Man, Lee J. Cobb. Hi, you slugger. Hi, Johnny. Hi, kids. That's another one. Yep. People don't talk about Lee J. Cobb enough. When I was acting, this was my model, Lee J. Cobb. Right. I did I want to be Brando and De Niro sure. and all those guys? Sure. But Lee J. Cobb is who I saw myself as. That's more my where I would have ended up if I had kept going and I was somewhat successful. It's so funny. Those you kinds know, of characters. You know who I want to be? I want to be Carl Malden. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, like like I I would never be able to be Lee J. Cobb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's and it's funny that both neither of you or I I played a lead like once. Yeah. Once I played I played Vershinen and Three Sisters. Mm. That's the only sort of romantic part I ever played. I wasn't good at it. Mm. It's not where I should. I was always like the weird uncle or the. You know the character that came in in the scene and yeah. did some. That's that's where I felt comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and man, him in this scene is amazing. Yeah, scary and powerful and intense and charismatic and funny in a yeah. weird way. Ugh. He's stomp. He's he's a, a lion stomping amongst yes his uh, lower animals in the jungle. You handle that sheet metal all right? Oh, yeah, it was easy. A little check, I fake the receipt. Here it is. You want to talk to me? Take the cigar out of your mouth, stow the receipt, I'll take the cash. Yeah, sure, yeah. He adjusts his speech pattern and his approach to every person differently. Uh, cut the, count, count this. I don't want to count it. You count it. You, you, you do this. You do that. And then when he finds other dudes cheating on him, cheating him, the, holding back the money, yeah, he grabs him by the collar, just smacks the hell out of him. <laughs> You come from Greenpoint, go back to Greenpoint. You don't work here no more. So you see, and all, but then turns around and like gives Brando a, a grab on the cheek, and like, oh, blah, blah. it's it, the, he adjusts to whoever he's talking to because he can. Because you, you, he runs you, things. You know what that makes me wonder? Going back to the group theater, yeah. and the method. Was he a student of Sandy Meisner? Because that's Meisner technique. Right. Meisner, if you if you guys ever want to study some of these different acting techniques, mm-hmm. Meisner does all this mirror exercise. It's repetition. Yeah, it's you get. I get energy from you. I give yeah. back the same energy. Yeah, and that that's what we're seeing Lee J. Cobb do. His energy shifts in every mm-hmm. moment that he's interacting with. And what's happening in addition to dominating this group 
is that we have the the person that's shorting him on the money. Yeah. But while that's happening, he's pushing Terry. Yeah. And he has Terry count some money. And then he's asking questions and kind of mocking him. And we have other thugs mocking him. This is where we hear that Terry was a boxer. And as he's counting, one of the other heavies goes, uh, the only number he knows how to count to was 10. Yeah. You know, and Terry's starting to get mad. And Charlie jumps in. Mm-hmm. And Charlie takes the money to count. And right when he's – because what's happening is that Johnny – feels the reluctance from Terry. Yeah. He feels that this guy is not totally on board. Mm-hmm. He's got a sensitivity to his people and keeping them in line. Yeah, yeah. And he's pushing on Terry. He likes the mindless thugs. Yep. Terry is not a mindless thug. He yep. can be a thug, but he's not mindless. And we should say Charlie's played by the great Rod Steiger, who is incredible in this uh, role as well. Also his first film. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, that's just crazy that that's happening. And then, then there's this moment where Lee J. Cobb – it reminds me of another of your famous performances actually, mm. which is uh, Anthony Quinn in Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. Is that he stands up and talks about how he got here. Well, my old lady raised us 10 kids on a stinking watchman's pension. When I was 16, I had a beg for work in the hole. I didn't work my way up out of that for nothing. Look, I, I know that, Johnny. I know it. You know, taking over this local took a little doing. There's some pretty rough fellas in the way. They give me this to remember them by. He had a, he had to keep his hand over his throat to stay alive, and he still went after them. I know what. You know, the, how he fought his way up and that it's just like the, you know, I'm a river to my people yeah, moment, yeah. but less likable and <laughs> way more scary. Well, I got 2,000 dues-paying members in this local. That's 72,000 a year legitimate. And when each one of them puts in a couple of bucks a day just to make sure to work steady, well, figure it out. And not just for openers. We got the fattest piers and the fattest harbor in the world. Everything moves in and out. We take our cut. Why shouldn't we? If we can get it, we're entitled to it. So this is corruption. He's a profoundly unhappy man. Wow. Yeah. Because no one is his equal on the dock. No one. And he couldn't handle an equal on the dock. But what that leads to is you can't have a conversation with anybody on the dock. Because Fair point. None of, them, none of them are going to challenge you or educate you or make you smarter. They're all going to be subservient to you or cower in front of you. Uh, and that leads to, yes, you're in charge, but you're in charge by yourself alone. That is a great point. You know? Well, and, and his only way of interacting is by continually dominating, yes. terrifying everybody. Yeah. Yeah. He has no other way to exist. Which, frankly, I've known people like this. Sure. Yeah. I've known bosses like this. Um. Uh, by the way, Johnny Friendly is also based on real people. He's based on uh, the head of the International Longshoremen's Association, mm. which is Michael Clemente, and also this guy, Albert Anastasia, who was a top enforcer for the crime, became part of the, I think, the Luciano family yep. or, or one of those. And, I mean, these are scary guys, and they ran the fucking docks for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Like, nothing got unloaded off of a boat if these guys didn't say, yes, do it, take their cut, and these are the guys who are going to do it, and this is where it's going to go. I mean – I mean, this is the thing is that it's funny. We had someone uh, – I don't remember if it was on Twitter or on Facebook. When they saw we were doing this film, they said, I will not watch that movie. I saw it once. It's a teardown of the unions. It's despicable. It's a horrible thing to attack unions like this. Oh, I like didn't this. see that. Oh, yeah. OK. And I go like, I don't think this is attacking unions at all. Mm. I think this is attacking corruption. Yes. And certainly throughout the history of unions – there has been mob involvement in the unions and corruption yeah. over and over again. Here's a news flash to anybody who's listening. There is not a system, there is not an organization that has not had to fight off corruption in one form or another. Because human beings are, when you get a, a bunch of human beings together, 
someone is going to be corrupt or a group of them are going to be corrupt. The nature of the human animal is to radiate to a place of getting more. Not everyone, but some will. Their instincts take over, their desire to take advantage, and the lies they tell themselves to um, rationalize their actions. It's always there, no matter what it is. Well, there's the Nietzsche call to power, and the you know there's certain people who want power, and frequently yeah. the people who really want power and have the skills to get power yeah. are also the people you don't necessarily want to trust with power. Right, and power corrupts. Yeah. You know that statement absolutely is true. Yeah, um, and then there's this moment where Johnny Friendly talks about the snitch, which is Joey, going to the crime commissioner. I don't suppose I can afford to be boxed out of a deal like this, do you? A deal I sweated and bled for, and I got a one lousy little cheesy to that dog bum who thinks he can go squealing to the crime commission, do you? And there's silence. Because who's he talking to? Who does he want a response from? He wants a response from Terry. Yeah. He wants, because he senses that's the weakness in the room, mm-hmm. and he wants Terry to go, yes, sir. And there is a pause. Well, do you? And Terry realizes mm-hmm. it's about him and goes, oh, no, Johnny, I just figured I should have been told. Well, that's not what he's supposed to say. Mm. He was supposed to say, of course. But he's actually arguing back with Johnny, which mm-hmm. is bad. And what does Charlie do? That's when he says they're 50 short. Yeah. And he turns the attention away from his brother who was about to get in trouble right. and instead turns it to this guy that then, as you say, Johnny just destroys. Embarrasses, yeah. Oh, yeah. And after that, he tells Terry, hey, thanks a lot. Here's 50 bucks. You're going to have the cushy job for a week. This is what happens when you are on the good side of Johnny Friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, and Terry walks out. Yeah. We're up on the roof. And there's kids, there's kids up there. And Terry's up there. And this is where the birds are, the pigeons. This is where Joey's pigeon coop is. This is really the roof on the buildings in Hoboken. Mm. There really were pigeons there. And the kid who we meet, whose name is Thomas Hardley, mm-hmm. uh, he actually lived in that building. Wow. This is how he gets on the movie. He hears a bunch of noise on the roof, goes up to see what's going on and sees them building a bunch of pigeon coops for the movie. Ask this guy Brownie. Brownie is one of the local longshoremen who's mm. helping out the film. He ends up being kind of a research guy, a go, you know, a gopher, a bodyguard. He kind of he starts talking to this guy. It ends up that Thomas Hardley's father was a longshoreman killed by the mob. Oh, wow. His father is like Joey or Dugan. Yeah. And Brownie says, hey, you got to go meet the director, Ilya Kazan. Goes to meet the director and they're kind of auditioning him, kind of, to see maybe this kid could be the kid in the movie. Right. And they're not getting much out of him. He's not really an actor. I mean, he's just a local kid. Yeah. And then Ilya says to him, you know what? I bet your father probably was a snitch. Can you believe that? Wow. And you know what that kid does? He picks up a chair. <laughs> he goes crazy. You call my dad a snitch? Right. You call him. They, Brownie restrained him. They held him down. And Kazan goes, that's the kid. <laughs> that's how he gets cast in the movie. Wow, that's one, fair. One interesting thing about him, this is this movie is in, shot in 1953, I mm-hmm. think. 1956, he was a longshoreman. Oh, wow. He joined up. Damn. Just like his father. Wow. Um, so. Got to pay bills. Yeah, you got to pay the bills. Um, and we talk about the pigeons and that they already fed them. And well, they sure got a mate, huh? Eating, sleeping, flying around like crazy, raising gobs of squabs. Something about that. Yeah, there's a thing here 
We're catching Terry Malloy at the at his awakening. Exactly. Yes. And so it is happening because he's reached some age where he is his mind is now starting to question everything that has been the construct of his world. Right. His his entire makeup as a person, and now he's beginning to question it. And little things are happening that cause him to have these profound moments and say these profound things at certain moments. Because he's trying to figure out what his feelings are about what's happening. Yeah, I love it. And as Terry contemplates these profound moments, I think it's time for you and I to take a little break so we can hear from our sponsors. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old. And this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Okay, welcome back to On the Waterfront, um, and we're going to head down to the docks. Yeah. Men are lining up for the jobs. This is what we do every morning, and where there's some talk about Joey, who got killed the night before, and then who shows up? But Joey's father. Right. Going to work the day after his son gets killed. Hey, Pop, why don't you go home? The boys will work today. I'll be chipping in the That's right, Pop. No, thanks, fellas. I'm going to shave. Who do you think will pay for the funeral? And you know what else he's doing? He's got Joey's clothes. He's going to give away. He's going to sell the clothes. I mean, this is as real as you can get. Because the other thing is, is who killed Joey? Right. Well, they're the guys right down here. They're the bosses. They're the people organizing who's getting a job and who isn't. Yeah. And he needs a job. Why don't you keep that big mouth of yours shut? What are you, wise guy? If I was wise, I wouldn't be no longshoreman for 30 years. I'm poorer now than when I started. Wise guy. Big mouth. That's something, man. That's something to mm-hmm. show up for that. Mm-hmm. And then there's someone there who's asking about Terry Malloy. Say, so you're Terry Malloy, aren't you? So what? Didn't I see you fight a couple of years ago? Uh, without the birdsey, what do you want? And he shows his idea, and it's a detective. Mm-hmm. And he has another detective with him who is <laughs> uncredited in this film, and that's Martin Balsam. Martin Balsam. In the background, one of our favorites. Yep. Um, and Carl Molden shows up and sees that they're starting to ask Terry some questions. Is Terry going to answer those questions? No. 
I don't know nothing. I ain't seen nothing. I'm not saying nothing. I want you and your girlfriend to just take off. All right, Mr. Malloy. You have every right not to talk if that's what you choose to do. That's what you're supposed to say, right? That's what he's been told to say. That's what he's been told to say. And the, the detectives back off. And now a loan shark comes up to dad. I find this moment really interesting, mm. which is dad hasn't been making his payments to the loan shark. And the loan shark is going to give him more money. Right. Because you got to pay for the funeral. you got expenses. So in other words, your kid gets killed by the mob. And so you go deeper in debt to the mob that killed your kid. Yeah. This is how they control you. Mm-hmm. And I just. You don't take no money. Yeah. Johnny, you don't take no money. You don't take no money. And this is the, is that how many people, like, I don't think we're mostly in debt to loan sharks any, around here anymore. Brother, the government is the loan shark. We're well, all in debt to a credit card company or I'm the government or a student loan. It's much better yeah. organized, you know, but student loan's a great example. Yeah. How many people are walking around with 60000 80000 in debt that they have no hope of really ever taking a dent out yeah. of? Or someone, the worst is you go to that payday loan company oh, yeah, yeah. and you're suddenly deep, deep in debt. Right. And if you don't pay it on this date, well, it doubles and doubles. It's just like a loan shark. Yeah, it's just it's all pretty and has a title in yep. front and has a nice little like business license. But it's the same fucking thing. Well, one of the worst ones is you get you have a crime and that you've got a bail bond. Right. You can't pay that bail bond or you can't pay to get out. And now the fees get up. And you're staying in jail. And there's no way to make money. It's like yeah. there's all sorts of there. There's all sorts of ways that the system makes people slaves. Yep. And watching on the waterfront, it's not like that anymore, but it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's just cleaned up. Yep. It's time for to call out for the jobs. And Edie's there too, and she's talking to Malda, Malden. Yeah. And the first thing she says is, I guess I spoke out of turn. Mm-hmm. She regrets how harsh she had been the night before. Right. And what he says, I love his line. He says, You think I'm just a gravy train rider with a turned around collar? <laughs> because I think, I don't think Father Barry slept at all last night. Oh, right. Yeah, that's I think her saying, "Do you think those saints stayed in the church?" I think that cha- that is the moment that changed his life. It's a great point, Steve. It's this running like little subplot of his journey uh, uh, and what he's supposed to do in this situation. Because yeah, words are great. Yeah, hiding out in the church. Where's the boldness in that? If you're really going to step up, step up, and you know, he's any up. He says, I've been thinking about your question, and uh, you're right, Edie. This is my parish. I don't know how much I can do, but I'll never find out unless I come down here and take a good look for myself. Terry gets a job. They're handing out these tabs, and there's private signals from the thugs about this person gets one, and this person does it, and this one gets it, and this one doesn't. And guys start to push. Guys start to shove. They start to fight. They throw some tabs down on the ground and a whole scrum of guys starts fighting over it. Yeah. And Pop, Edie's dad, he needs to get one. And she runs into help into this melee to get him a job. And it gets kind of scary. And then we hear, oh, that's Joey Doyle's sister. And they give her the tab. Yeah, Brando takes the tab. Yeah. And then gets confronted with that. It's Joey Joey Doyle's sister. And then he gives gives her the thing. But he is clearly upset or emotional about the fact that she's there, upset about the coincidence that she that she's asking to get this yep. thing from him. And certainly the guilt is there on That's, his yeah, face. That's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then 
that's all the people are going to take. Come yeah. back tomorrow. Yeah. Well, she comes over and she gives a tab to her dad, yeah. who's kind of embarrassed to have the tab from a from a from his daughter, yep. and b from a woman. Probably that's how he yeah. might look or be embarrassed by that. Well, and, and the fact that Terry is right there. Yeah, in fact, Terry's right there. Yeah. Tries to send her home. Well, she's not supposed to be down there, right? I mean, the whole we're going to hear it later, but the whole everything he's worked for yeah. is that she doesn't have to be down here, mm-hmm. and here she is, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, Father Barry comes up to some of the longshoremen who were left and it's like, why do you take it? Why do you do this? It's like, well, that's what else are we going to do? Yeah. You come know? back tomorrow. Yeah. What does that mean? You come back tomorrow. Yeah. We just wait and come back tomorrow. And and they say, you know, he's like, these wise guys are, are running this whole thing. And they say, they say, you know, he says, what about your union? And, and there's like, just, I love the looks and the smiles between the mm-hmm. men because they know the answer. Right. And here's this naive guy mm-hmm. coming down trying to tell them what to do. And there's like, look, you stand up at a union meeting and say this, you're going to get knocked out. Yeah. You end up like Joey. You know, that's what's going to happen. Dugan is quietly one of my favorite characters. In the He's movie, great. Right? Yeah. He's so authentic. Whoever that actor is is so authentic at playing Dugan. And the way he responds to the father all the time yep. is great as well. And they say there's no place safe in America to have a meeting. And he says, and Malden says, the church, the bottom of the church. You serious, Father? He says, yeah. And then he says, you got a cigarette? And they <laughs> yeah. Give him one. I love the cigarettes with Malden. They're just a great little mm-hmm. small touch. Every time there's an intense moment, he's going to get a cigarette. And it's also a moment of connection, too. Yeah. We're on the job. Terry has got an easy job. He does. Sitting, reading a magazine. Charlie's there, kind of wants him to get to work. And then Charlie says what he really wants. I want you to go to that church meeting. Yeah, spy on it. And he goes, isn't that being a snitch? And Char- I love Charlie's answer. Let me tell you what stooling is. Stooling is when you rat on your friends, the guys you're with. Yeah. Look, if Johnny wants a favor, don't think about it. Do it. It's not being a snitch if they're not your friends. Right. So here's the interesting thing about that statement. <laughs> Who is Terry's friends? Uh, Johnny Friendly and all those guys are uh, who run is the docks. Is well, no, Friendly, right. but he thinks they are. That's what he thinks now. Right, right. But Charlie just gave him the definition. Yeah, it's only snitching if they're your friends. Right. Johnny Friendly and Charlie too are not his friends. Yeah. I mean, maybe Charlie. We're gonna have to. Hey, maybe Elia. Mm. Yeah, we're gonna have to get into that little Kazan. Action, well, this right? is we're gonna get we're getting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we're at the church meeting. We're waiting. It's not a lot of people there. Edie's there. Edie's dad is there. Yeah. Of course, Carl Malden's there. Another priest is there. And finally, I guess it's time to start the meeting. Well, I thought there'd be more of you here, but the, uh, the Romans found out what a handful could do if it's the right handful. I'm not entirely sure what that means the more I think about it. Well, could be Spartacus, could be Hannibal. I guess. Yeah. But none of those people beat the Romans. I always thought that he meant oh, Jesus and his points. disciples. Oh, yeah, good point. But points. they don't really beat the Romans either, at least uh, not for a long time. Yeah, but, yeah. And then I love what happens, What he says next. I'm just a potato eater, but um, isn't it simple as one, two, three? One, the working conditions are bad. Two, they're bad because the mob does the hiring. And three, the only way we can break the mob is to stop letting them get away with murder. And who walks in as he's talking? Terry Malloy. Terry Malloy. Strolls in, too. Yeah. Yeah. Sits in the back. Father Barry asks, Who killed Joey Doyle? There's looks. There's a very palpable silence. This is no answer. Mm-hmm. He says, I have a hunch all of you could tell us something about it. How can we call ourselves Christians and protect these murderers with our silence? 
And then Edie, she's there. She turns back at one of the guys and says, you're Joey's best friend. Um, and he's not going to give any answer. Yeah. And then Dugan, your pal Dugan, turns around and says, Who asked him in here? I'm just trying to find out what happened to Joey Doyle. Maybe you can be helpful. Helpful? The brother of Charlie the Gent, they'll help us get to the bottom of the river. Better leave Charlie out of this. Charlie the Gent. It's <laughs> a good name. It's a good mob name. It's interesting that because he didn't have any more background than Terry did. Yeah. They're both orphans from a dad who was a longshoreman who got killed somehow. We don't know. And uh, m- maybe. Um, and somehow he becomes the gent. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way he dresses. Yeah. But I like Terry here, the physical work that Brando does for Terry here. He doesn't want to be here. He's here. But he also feels like he doesn't have to be sneaky. Like, who gives a shit? He puts his arms o- over the church uh, like that is all body language of a guy who is like so relaxed. If there's nothing here and it's just kind of like watching these people and they're not going to do anything. And so it doesn't matter to him. Well, and then there's, but then there's the next moment where someone, they start talking about his brother. Yes. And you then don't talk about switches. his brother. Right. Then it's, it switches. There's a switch. Mm-hmm. Better leave Charlie out of this. You don't think he'd be helpful? Why don't you ask him yourself? Maybe I will one of these days. One of these days. Bolton keeps at him. He's like, you know who the pistols are, and you let them cut you down one by one. Dugan. Dugan, how about you, are you? One thing you got to understand, Father. On the dock, we've always been D&D. D&D, what's that? Deaf and dumb. No matter how much we hate the torpedoes, we don't rat. Rat? When our boys get smart. I know you're getting pushed around, but there's one thing we've got in this country, and that's ways of fighting back. Now, getting the facts to the public, testifying for what you know is right against what you know is wrong. Now, what's writing to them is telling the truth for you. Now, can't you see that? And again, there's just looks. Because he doesn't get it. No. He's naive. Yeah. He comes from that Dudley Do-Right, black and white type approach to the world. And it ain't in the Bible. In the real world, it's a lot harder than that. Well, here's the thing. He is 100% right sure. that if all the longshoremen said no, Johnny Friendly's got no power whatsoever. But what he doesn't get is the fear, the the separation, the loneliness of standing up by yourself and getting killed and knowing that your family's going to starve. They're going to lose your yeah. their home. They're going to – I mean like the pain of that is something that priest can't grasp. Yep. He didn't have a family. Mm-hmm. And he's – on some level, as you said at the beginning, he's protected by the church. Yep. And Edie knows this isn't going to work and – the other priest says, seems to me we've gone just about as far as we can, and we're going to end this with a little prayer, and then a rock comes through the window. <laughs> and then, and this is scary, a whole bunch of guys out there banging, banging on the walls. Intimidation. Windows. Yeah. 100% that's what them is. More things come through the windows, and he, you know, they're sending people out in pairs, and Terry grabs Edie yeah. and takes her out in a, on a safe way. He takes her up. Rather than straight out the door, because the guys going out the door, they're getting beaten. Yeah, including her dad. Yeah, and Edie is asking, "What about my dad?" And he says, "Oh, don't worry, he's an old man. They're not going to hurt him." Oh, yeah, they are. Yeah, Dugan's getting beaten by a baseball bat. Yeah, and Father Barry gets in the way. Yeah, pushes the guy away. Looks up at Dugan and says, "You're still D and D. You still call it ratting." If I stick my neck out and they chop it off, would that be the end of it? Or are you willing to go all the way down the line? They'll put the muscle on you, too. Turned around collar or no turned around collar. Wipe your face. Listen to me. You stand up and I'll stand up with you. 
right down the wire. So help me God. Does he know what he's getting into? Uh, the priest? Father Barry? No. I don't think so either. I think Father Barry thinks he knows what he's getting into. But yes. he, but like you said, Steve, earlier, Edie's words are affecting him. Yeah. And now Dugan calling his ass out, man to man. Yeah. This is nothing to do with priest or whatever. This is man to man. How far are you willing to go with this? Yep. Right? What does Sean Connery say? What are you prepared to do? Yeah. In that moment, like, because when you're facing uh, corruption like this, you got to be all in or all out. Does Dugan know what he's getting into? Yeah. Dugan's oh, yeah. very aware of what's happening. But he also has a desire to fight this thing once yep. and for all. Like, yep. you know. Um, again, it's interesting who the heroes are. Mm. I mean, in the end, Terry is the hero. Yeah. But Terry doesn't get to be have that moment without Dugan, without Joey, right. without Edie, without Father Barry. Right. You got to have those people for And Charlie on some level. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, Edie and Terry have gotten out. Yeah. They're clear. And first thing she asks is, which side are you on? My side. Mm-hmm. And then there's this weird so – this is the weirdest scene in the movie, I think, is there's this kind of homeless guy, drunk yeah. guy. He and, comes back later. Yeah. Yeah. And he sort of recognizes that that's – Right. Uh, were you going to say something? No, I just – I think this is – you say – I think it's a, this is a very important scene oh, in the yeah. movie. Because I think – because he recognizes that that's – that he's – She's Joey's sister. Yep. But then recognizes that Terry was there last night. And Terry pushes him away because Terry doesn't want to be found out. Yep. Terry doesn't want to have this situation told to Edie just yet uh, because Terry seems to have grown fond of Edie. Right. uh, And now doesn't want to have it ruined by this guy. And the guy won't take his money. Yep. And I find that to be interesting. Oh, yeah. Because Well, first of all, and he calls Terry a bum. Yeah. That word, a bum. That's a word. That's a word in this film that's really important. Yeah, and it's and again we go into. I think Terry has constructed a lie that he could live with a little bit up mm-hmm. until Joey's death and mm-hmm. up until Edie and up until Father Barry, and that lie is falling apart. As you said, this is awakening. Yeah, and this guy calling him a bum, and him realizing I can't let Edie know who I am. Right, what the truth is. Right, and she's kind of going, "What did that man mean?" He says, "Don't pay any attention to him." And she wants to go. You don't have to be afraid of me. I'm not going to bite you. I guess they don't let you walk with fellas where you've been, huh? You know how the sisters are. Yeah. Are you training to be a nun? And then as they're talking, she pulls out her gloves and she drops a glove. Such a sweet scene. Terry picks it up. And I love watch watch Eva Marie Saint's acting in the moment where she kind of hesitantly tries to take the glove back, right. and he doesn't let her have it back. Well, if I if I remember correctly from the documentary of Kazan, this was all improv by Brando playing with the glove was all improv yep. as this was going along. Well, it's not so. What the what, the one misconception? It's not improv on camera, right? This happened in a rehearsal, right? And everything that Brando did, and this is the method, like right here. You want to see what the method is? She accidentally dropped a glove in rehearsal, and Brando picked it up, right? And so while the the dialogue is great, and the things that are happening are great, the fact that he's playing with her glove, and then that he sits down on that swing and he puts his hand in the glove, mm-hmm. and it's so subtle and simple, it's just beautiful. What do you do up there? Just what study? Well, I'd be a teacher. Teacher. That's very good. You know, I personally, I admire brains. My brother Charlie is a very brainy guy. He had a couple of years of college. It isn't just brains. It's, it's how you use them. They talk about that they were in school together, and he describes that she had the braids and the braces. Yeah. You don't, you don't remember me, do you? Remember you the first moment I saw you. 
Right in those, not. Well, some people just got faces that stick in your mind. <laughs> when Brando smiles, it's beautiful. Yeah, of course. He's got he's got that power. Yeah, you know, radiates that charm. Absolutely. And she remembers that he was in trouble all the time, and mm-hmm. he talks about. Why? The way those sisters used to whack me, I don't know what. They thought they was going to beat an education out of me, but I fucked them. Maybe they just didn't know how to handle you. Well, he says, I showed them. Oh, yeah. But how did you show them? By ending up being an uneducated guy working on the docks. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You didn't really win in that situation. Nope. But he thinks he did because he's got that stupid bride thing. She calls him out and says, and she's very sweet in that moment and says, you know. Um, maybe she didn't know how to handle you. Which is her way of kind of flirting with him. Absolutely. Right? It's probably says, her first interest with anybody. And he says, how would you have handled me? Yeah. And she says. With a little more patience and kindness. That's what makes people mean and difficult. People don't care enough about them. And there's that look. There's just that. They have great chemistry together. Yeah. Great chemistry. Oh, yeah. Um, and his response is, you're, you're kidding me. I better get you home. I better get you home. There's too many guys around here with only one thing in their mind. Am I going to see you again? What for? The music, by the way, is totally West Side Story at this moment. It's, yeah, yeah. Which he's writing like almost at the same time. Because mm-hmm. I think West Side Story comes out of 57, 58, something like that. Mm-hmm. It's right after this. And she starts to walk away and then he calls to her. And there's a great close-up as she follows him. Mm-hmm. You know. By the way, uh, Sam Spiegel hated the love story. Oh, wow. What? Water cut out. Thought there was no reason for a love story in this movie. Shouldn't be a love story. Take it out. Schulberg used, you know, that veto power that, yeah, yeah. that Kazan gave him? He said, no. This, the love story stays in. That's it. Kazan, of course, sided with him. And yeah. Can you imagine this movie? <coughs> but the film doesn't work without the love no. story. It really doesn't. It changes Terry from beginning to end. Back at her place. She goes inside. Dad's got a bus ticket for her. Yeah. Because he made a deal with his mom that they put quarters in cookie jars to get her up with the sisters so he wouldn't see what he just saw, which is her and Terry Malloy. Yeah. Daughter of mine walking arm in arm with Terry Malloy. Do you know who Terry Malloy is? Who is he, Pop? He's the kid brother of Charlie the Gent, who is Johnny Friendly's right hand and a butcher in a camel hair coat. And she's kind of going, no, I think there's something else about him. There's some other quality to him. Mm-hmm. And he grabs her. I love this moment with Dad and says, See this arm? Two inches longer than the other. That's from years of waking and sweating and lifting and swinging a hook. Every time I heist a box or a coffee bag, I says to myself, That's for Edie, so she can be a teacher or something decent. That's powerful stuff. Oh, yeah. And again, that's the immigrant. That's mm-hmm. that's Ellie Kazan's father working at the carpet store. Yep. So his son could be a great director. My dad said that to me all the time. I work this job. I take the abuse of these people as I serve them as a banquet waiter yeah. so that you can get an education, so you could be something better than me. I mean, it's, it's the story of the immigrant always. Yep. Uh, if you're a son of immigrants, you know that speech. You hear it every time. Yep. Um, it's on the rooftop. Edie's there. We're at Joey's Coop. Um, the kids are there. And we talk a little bit about pigeons and racing pigeons and uh, and that Terry's been taking care of Joey's pigeons. And I love the moment where he says, you know, the city's full of hawks. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. a fact. They hang around on the top of big hotels, spot a pigeon in the park and go down on them. Yeah. Do you think the pigeons and the hawks represent something in our film here? Well, sure. 
I mean, if you're looking at it, right, uh, the Hawks going out and feasting on the pigeons. Johnny Friendly. Johnny Friendly, right. Yeah. And all these pigeons, these are Terry Malloy and all the other people. And he has a sensitivity to the pigeons. He wants to take care of them. Right. That's his real instinct. Right. You know, I mean, this is the thing. I think this is a movie about Terry Malloy becoming Terry Malloy. Let me ask you something. What does the term stool pigeon come from? That's a great question. Right. I don't know the answer. Right? Because, I mean, he's yeah. taking care of pigeons the whole time, That's which is the biggest yeah. tell ever that he's going to be a stool pigeon. Boy, you're right. Right? And so I wonder what the— uh, Yeah, so someone out, somewhere out, well, you're going to look it up? I, I'll look it up while okay. you talk. Yeah. Oh, sure. i got to talk. All right. Um, <laughs> and then uh, he brings out a pigeon and shows it to her. And, of course, she thinks it's a girl. It's not a girl. Uh, our, our kid quickly corrects her on that. Mm-hmm. And then he goes and see what he did, which is funny because it's not a girl, and pulls out a pigeon egg um, and describes this pigeon. He says, you know, if another bump tries to come along and take his place, he really lets him have it. Even pigeons aren't peaceful. Well, you know, one thing about them, though, they're very faithful. They get married just like people. Better. And they stay that way till one of them dies. I mean, again, this is him. He's right. talking about himself. He's talking about someone comes at this pigeon. They, you know, he fights back. Right. He's faithful because that's one of Terry's problems is he's faithful to his brother. Well, yeah, because he has to because it's his brother. It's his brother, of course. It's, and we find out later, like what we find out later what his brother did, and we question why he was faithful to him. Well, he did. This is the. Th- I mean, if your brother protected you, yeah. At what point? And he did. I don't. Yeah. There's no question. I agree. I think Charlie kept Terry alive for a certain period of time. Charlie's smarter than Terry. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and, and and Terry knows it. And Terry knows it. And Terry, uh, the young Terry, didn't question right. what Charlie was doing. It's only now that he's starting to go. Wait a minute. Mm-hmm. This is maybe not such a good thing. Yeah. He asked her if she likes beer. <laughs> I don't know. It's a weird question. I bet you never had a glass of beer. You ever had a glass of beer? No. Want to have one with me in a saloon? Yeah, nice little dump here. <laughs> he goes, come on. And she says, okay. Right. I think this scene is just that because there's no reason. She should never say yes to this. No. There's, and yet it's that chemistry. Yep. yep. Brando. You never know who's going to be with you. Yep. Yeah. Brando wasn't happy with Eva Marie saying <laughs> at the beginning of the picture. He didn't like – she was inexperienced. She was. She was insecure. Mm-hmm. She was nervous, and he came to Kazan. He's like angry. I don't like this situation. And Kazan said, "She is to you as Edie is to Terry." Yeah. And Brando went, "Oh." <laughs> and from that point forward, it clicked. Mm. Everything worked. This is why Kazan's a great director. Yeah. So he knew exactly the right thing to say. You know, you don't just tell Brando what to do. That's not what you got. It is that. Right. You got to make him see it. And once he sees it, he's going to give you stuff that you could never have imagined yeah. yourself. We're at the saloon. This scene is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Are you really a prize fighter? I used to be. How did you get interested in that? Well, I don't know. I had a scrap on my life. I might as well get paid for it. Well, as a kid, my old man got bumped off, and and uh, never mind how. We don't know what that meant, yeah, or by whom. And he stuck Charlie and me in a, a dump they call a children's home. Uh, boy, that was some home. Yeah. Anyhow, I ran away from there. 
And I fought in the club smokers and pedal papers, and Johnny Friendly bought a piece of me. Bought a piece of you? Yes. That's a sim- I mean, I think that's just a colloquialism for he owns a part of his contract as a fighter, but it's also the truth. Oh, yeah. Johnny Friendly bought a piece of me. Yeah. And he keeps paying for it. Yeah. I was going pretty good there for a while. And after that, uh... And then there's a pause. Mm-hmm. What's in that pause? This is him thinking about him having to throw that fight. It's that fight. Man. Yep. It's, we're, all, we're building to that scene in the cab. Mm-hmm. That's what we're building to in a lot of ways. It's the heart of the movie. What's interesting about it to me is it's the heart of the movie and it has nothing to do with the movie. You're right, right, right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's deep, deep pain in Terry's character. Right. But in fact, it has nothing to do with what actually is the conflict of the film. Right, yeah. You know, and yet we're somehow going to resolve both of these things. Yeah. And then, and then after this thought, after this pause where he's thinking about that fight, mm. he says, I don't know. What do you really care? That's a, that's a moment because her response. Shouldn't everybody care about everybody else? Well, what a fruitcake you are. I mean, isn't everybody a, a part of everybody else? And you really believe that, Drew? Yes, I do. So I think that is a lovely line and a naive line. Mm-hmm. Because she is. She's naive. She's been sheltered by yeah. the dad and Joey, I imagine, before Joey died. Sure. Oh, no, they all were protecting her. Right. 100%. I think they sensed that this is a canary in a, what do you call it, a canary in a coal mine, like a bird? What, what that is know. a canary in the coal mine. Right, yeah. It's just this kind of thing like, okay, this is something beautiful and different, and we don't want it stained by what's around it. That is not, in my opinion, the definition of the, a canary in a coal okay, mine. Okay, okay. But Either way, I just mean that she's this... Yeah. She is the rose. The, the rose that she's comes. The rose. Yeah, the, exactly. the rose that comes out of the concrete. Yeah, that's what she is. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah. a tree grows in Brooklyn. Anyway, oh, um, you know, I read that book. It's not that good book. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it sells out all the time. I remember. Yeah. Um, but, but that's a true digression. But we digress. Um, <laughs> it's late, folks. Yeah, <laughs> the the punchiness has started to set in. We're like two Terry Malloys right now, and then the beers show up, mm. and not just beers. Two shots. Yeah, two shots. So when you ask a girl, have you ever had a beer? No, I never had a beer. Oh, come with me, have a beer. But you order her a shot. Yeah. That's a whole other level. And he they, they do a cheers and she tastes it. She likes it. Mm. And then he shoots his and she shoots hers. I think her face is one of the best I just had my first <laughs> shot of alcohol reactions I've ever seen. Yeah. And he says, He won in my philosophy of life. Do it to him before he does it to you. This is a great line. This is the one that I think is Terry, like, Terry giving you a window into who he is and how he operates in the world, how he's learned to operate in yep. the world. Do it to him before he does it to you. Yep. Yeah. Except I don't think he believes that at all. No. He's, a, that he is, he's parroting some mm-hmm. Johnny Friendly bullshit. Mm-hmm. And maybe Charlie said this to him too, but that's not who he is. Yeah. And what's so funny is the next moment is one where – if this were another movie, this is a moment of someone totally nailing another person yeah. of what Edie says to him. But in this movie, I think she's actually wrong. I never met anyone like you. There's not a spark of sentiment or romance or human kindness in your whole body. That is exactly not true. Right. He's filled with sentiment and human kindness. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's why Brando's cast because we could see that. When he holds that pigeon or the pigeon mm, egg yeah. or talks to the kid or thinks about Joey's death or looks at Edie or looks at the priest or any of these other people, yeah. that it's all sentiment mm-hmm. that he's holding in. 
What good does it do you besides get you in trouble? And when, when things and, and people get in your way, you just, just knock them aside. And his, now he starts to get angry because he realizes, again, that's that guilt coming to hit him. And he goes, don't look at me when you say that. It wasn't my fault what happened to Joey. Fixing him wasn't my idea. Who said it was? Well, everybody's putting a needle on me. You and a mug in a church and Father Barry. Are they? In his mind, they are. Yeah, in his mind. Right. And maybe they are. But, uh, so, maybe. I mean, certainly people know that he's involved. Right. But his guilty conscience is starting Absolutely. to grow. Yep. I love her response. Well, what's Father Barry got to do with this? Mm-hmm. And he says, what's his racket? Right. Racket? He's a priest. How could a priest have a racket? Right. Again, that's she's naive. I mean, priests do have rackets sometimes. They but do. Yeah, yeah, that's, but they the, do. Yeah, but in just, the concept of this movie, it doesn't make sense. Right. Well, well. Father Barry doesn't have a racket. Right. How many priests were there on the waterfront in Hoboken that did? Probably a you know lot. Because what, I mean? yeah. what, what Terry does know that she doesn't is that priests are just people. Yeah. They're just people. Yeah. There's some good ones. There's some not so good ones. Listen, down here, it's every man for himself. It's keeping alive. It's standing in with the right people so you get a little bit of change jingling in your pocket. And if you don't? If you don't, right down. It's living like an animal. I'd rather live like an animal and end up like... And he can't complete the sentence. Mm -hmm. Like Joey. So is he coming to terms with the death of Joey at this point by saying that? I'd rather live like an animal than end up like, oh, shit, oh. I I don't think he's come to terms with it, no. I think, I think, here's how I'll put it. In Terry's mind, all roads lead to Joey. Yeah. Every thought process he goes off on comes back to Joey. Right. If I do this, I'll end up like this. Well, and that and it's and, and it's it's almost like the mirror image of that. So that's true. Mm-hmm. And also, I am the thing that killed Joey. Right. You know, mm-hmm. Joey if if Joey keeps doing this, he runs up against me. Right. Against Charlie, against Johnny Friendly. Is that that's the it's not just seeing myself as a person under threat. It's seeing myself as the threat, as yeah. the evil yeah. in the world. Not that I have to fight against the evil. You know, the story of the pigeon is something comes against him. He's going to fight back. Mm-hmm. But the the other part of that story is what if the pigeon – what if that is – you're the attacker. Yeah. And how do you know the difference? Yeah. You know? Um, there's that, that line, you know, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Right. Um, I think that's where his brain is right now. Mm-hmm. Like Joey. Are you afraid to mention his name? The intensity on her face is – Powerful. It's palpable. Well, what do you keep hopping on that for? Come on, drink up. You got to get a little fun out of life. And sh- and sh- she says, help me if you can, for God's sake. Mm. Can you imagine if someone says that to you? I don't know if you ever had that at that level. Mm. I've had help. I've had some help me's a few times. Right. Help me if you can, for God's sake. And she won't even look at him in this moment. Yeah. I think the next moment from Brando is so honest and so pained. Edie, I'd like to help. I'd like to help, but there's nothing I can do. I don't think it's even just that if I help you, I'll die. I think it's if I help you, Charlie will die. Right. You know? Right. There's nothing I can do. Or you're asking me to, like, go up against my family. Everything, yeah. yeah in essence, my family. Yeah. 
And she takes that in. She hears him. She says, all right, I should never have asked you. Mm-hmm. And we're in a beauty. So the, there's a so we have different names for different shots. And over the shoulder is a shot where you're shooting over my shoulder to you. So you have some of my shoulder, maybe some of my face, and, and then we're seeing you. If we do the reverse shot, it's an over the shoulder from you to me. There's an expression in film, which is that we do it, do it dirty. It dirty doesn't mean pornographic. It doesn't mean no anybody's naked. What it means is, is that if I'm shooting over the shoulder to me, some part of my body is obscuring part of your face. Mm. So I'm dirtying up your face. This is wearing a dirty over the shoulder now. Uh, and, and there's something about the dirty over the shoulder that gives a sense of intimacy and connection in a way that having the clean over the shoulder doesn't. And, and for those filmmakers out here or potential filmmakers, I want you to take a look at this shot. First of all, you have to have these great actors. We don't have the great actors. It doesn't matter what shot we're in. Right. But the power of the way these shots are framed, the closeness of it, the, the dirtiness of the framing, what's obscuring parts of the face that creates the intensity and the connection that we're seeing here. Yeah. It's just great. Just, like, have some fun. And he even lifts her glass to her. At this point, she doesn't want it. I don't want it. She says, you could stay and finish your drink. And he says, I've got my whole life to drink. I think he's seen a real sad future. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I've got my whole life to drink. And then he says, I'm sorry. What for? Well, Not being no help to you. I think for not being able to help you is an admission of guilt. Yeah. Even though he's not saying it, and he doesn't say it until much later in the movie, I think that part of that is an admission of guilt. Mm-hmm. And she touches his face and says, you would if you could. There's a lot of compassion in that. Yeah. And she gets up, and he touches his own face where she just touched him. Yeah. I don't think Terry's a virgin. I don't think Terry – I think Terry's had girlfriends. Probably. He's had a bunch of girlfriends. Sure. I don't think anyone's ever touched his face mm-hmm. the way that she just touched his face. Right. With tenderness and kindness and forgiveness and caring and a total lack of for what Terry would call a racket. Yeah. She's touching his face because she sees him or thinks she does. And she's reinforcing what she had said earlier to him. Uh, everyone is connected. Everyone – shouldn't people care for each other? Blah, blah, blah. She's reinforcing that and then saying – what she said earlier as well – uh, I don't think they knew how to handle you. Yeah. Patience and kindness. That's a great point. Right. It's exa- she see that is so great. Yeah. She, as naive as she is, as as unworldly as she is, she's never had a beer. She sees a person in Terry. Yeah. You know, it's funny, you go to that scene with dad where dad says it's Charlie the Gent's brother. Yeah. He's Johnny Friendly's hitting, you know, he's a, basically a bad guy. She goes, I see something in him. Mm. The thing is, she's right. Yeah. It's only when she said that you had no human spark of human kindness that she's wrong. Mm-hmm. That's that's actually working against her instincts. Right. Um, there's some cuts in movies that are very soft. You don't even notice the cut. There's some cuts that are hard. We cut into the wedding and the noise and the chaos yeah. and the movement out of this tender scene. <laughs> there's a wedding going on and Edie kind of gets pushed around in there and and there's – all sorts of action going on and Terry comes in and takes her off to the side kind of rescuing her from mm-hmm. all the chaos in the wedding and Edie is crying and he says what's the matter with you um, and she kind of hears the music it's a pretty tune and he offers her a stick of gum mm-hmm. and says you like that music if I had my tuxedo I'd ask you to dance come on you want to spin and then they dance mm-hmm. and his words to her are don't be afraid 
and there's a top-down shot through the, the streamers and there's the bridegroom and there's Terry and Edie, these unwanted guests at this wedding dancing. It's beautiful. Yep. Yeah. Uh, later, they're dancing and spinning and she's obviously a little bit of drunk and he says, the sisters ought to see you now. And they embrace and they're smiling and she says, it feels like we're floating, just floating. And they move off to the side under a plant and they are about to kiss and then the lights come up. Yeah. And there's that big guy who is a... Square, as square-jawed a man. She looks like, he looks like a Dick Tracy villain. Totally had the same thought. Right. Exactly what he looks like. And he says, the boss has been looking for you. Boss has been looking for you. He's got the drink in his hand. Yeah. Um, and the sandwich in the other. And that the boss is hot. Yeah. Which means he's angry. Right. And Terry says, I'm going to take, take her home first. Tell, and then he even says, tell him I'll come over when I'm ready. Mm. That is aggressive. We've met Johnny Friendly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know that this is not going to go well. And the mug, the mug, as Terry would call him, goes away. Who was he? You got to quit trying to find out about Joe. It ain't safe. Now, I'm telling you, it ain't safe. That reveals a bit too much, you know. And it, right at that moment, here come the cops. Yep. And they serve him with a subpoena. Mid State House, courtroom 9, 10 o'clock Friday morning. I told you, I don't know nothing about that. Now you can bring a lawyer if you wish. You're privileged under the Constitution to protect yourself against questions which might implicate you in any crimes. Uh, listen, you know what they're asking me to do? What we want you to do, Mr. Malloy, is tell the truth. And they leave. And Edie looks at him. What are you going to do? And he throws the subpoena away. And she grabs him and says, It was Johnny Fenley who had Joey killed, wasn't it? Or he had him killed, he had something to do with it, didn't he? He and your big brother, Charlie? You can't tell me, can you, because you're part of it. Because you're just as bad as the worst of them. Tell me the truth, Terry. You better go back to that school out in Daisyland. You're driving yourself nuts, you're driving me nuts. Quit worrying about the truth all the time. Worry about yourself. It's right out there. Yeah. Yeah. It had been such a sweet, tender, and then... The issues between that that they've both been ignoring, kind of bumbling, bubbling mm-hmm. under the surface, now comes right to the surface here's and a, threatens to explode. Here's a rule about writing for all you potential writers out there. there. You when you're a writer, you are God. You create the universe. Yeah. And your job is not to be a kind, loving, caring, compassionate God. Your job is to be an angry, vengeful, mean God. Yeah. You don't let your characters kiss. Mm-hmm. That's what this is, is that you kick them right till they're about to kiss and then you have the mobster who probably killed Joey show up yeah. and then you have the, the cops with the subpoena show up and then you have every single terrible thought that she has about Terry come out mm. in this moment because that is what good stories are about. Yeah. They're not about people getting what they want, at least not till the end. Yeah. They're about people being prevented from getting what they want. Pop said Johnny Fraley used to own you. Well, I think he still owns you. wonder everybody calls you a bum. Yeah. There's that word again. Yeah. And then she goes on. No wonder. No wonder. I'm only trying to help you out. I'm trying to keep you from getting hurt. What more do you want me to do? Much more. Wait a minute. Much, much, much more. And she walks out. And as she walks out, the wedding bursts into applause. Yeah. And he's left alone. It's later. Terry's walking outside. And a car speeds up and stops, pulls right up to him, and there's Johnny. Hi there, 
Johnny. I was Genius. Just, I was just coming over there. What way in Chicago? No, I said I'm on my way over there. <laughs> Man, again, Lee J. Cobb is scary. How yeah. many times you've been knocked out? Two times. Brains must have been scrambled. How are you going to keep your eye on that uh, on that church meeting? I think is what he's asking. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's just like, no, there's nothing happening at the church meeting. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. He said, some operator you got yourself there. One more like him would all be wearing striped pajamas. I'm telling you, Johnny, it was a big nut, and the priest did all the talking. He did, eh? Yeah. Half an hour later, a certain Timothy J. Dugan had a secret session with a crime commission, and he done all the talking. He paces. Yeah. Johnny does. He. It's like an animal in a cage. He, he's an yeah. animal in a cage, yeah. and he has to look away and look past and look around. Because, like, if he focuses in right. on uh, Terry, I think he's afraid of what he might do. Yeah. So it's his way of ke- calming himself down or keeping himself from fully dialing into doing what he wants to do to Terry, which is kick the shit out of him. You know, your statement before about him being lonely, I think is – I keep thinking about that because yeah. – he is so unhappy. Yeah. Well, and this is the thing. Unhappy. It's like, okay, you work to become the top guy. Yeah. You are the top guy. Mm-hmm. You work to bring in all this money. You're bringing all this money. You worked for all these things so you will be successful and powerful. And you, you don't. It's, none of it is helping you at all. You're a miserable person. I don't care how much you accomplish in this fucking world. If you don't address your own shit, your own issues, yeah. you will be profoundly unhappy no matter how much goddamn money you have because it will creep into everything. It'll creep into how you treat people, how you perceive people treating you, how you uh, 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 handle your relationships with whoever you're in love with, your family. It will creep into everything. Um, and that's the that's the battle we all fight. Well, and that's literally the battle that Terry is fighting Absolutely. with his own soul. Mm-hmm. That and and the battle is being uh, modeled, is being symbolized yeah. by Edie on the one side right. and Father Barry and Charlie and Johnny Friendly on the other. Yeah. Because what Terry doesn't know is that something did happen at that meeting because Dugan has gone to the cops and there are 29 pages, the complete works of Dugan, and that those are what's going to put all of them in what Johnny Friendly will say is striped pajamas. Yeah. And Charlie is there and Terry's rocked by this. He's like, well, I knew he had guts, but again, the wrong thing to say. I knew he had guts right. because saying I knew he had guts implied that there's some uh, something to be admired yeah. about Dugan turning against Johnny Friendly. Or that you knew he there was a possibility. Right. Well, and obviously that you know that Johnny Friendly is a criminal. Yeah. You know, and man, his reaction. I knew he had the guts, but I never... Guts! Well, that crummy pigeon, he ought to have his neck run. We get for getting mixed up with this punch drunk brother. He was, he was all right hanging around for last, but this is business. I don't like anyone goofing off in my I business. Wasn't goofing, Johnny. What are you going around with his sister for? Go- Just shut up. And they tell him, get rid of her. Now look, we got to do something to muzzle this Dugan or he'll raise the biggest stink this town has ever seen. We got the best muscle on the waterfront. The time to use it is now, pronto, if not sooner. So, what has he just said in front of Terry? Well, when he says get rid of her, is he saying he wants her to get killed? Well, there's two things. One yeah. is get rid of Edie, which I, I actually do think is just like stop stop seeing, seeing her. That's yeah. what I think it is. Yeah. But he says we have the best muscle here. It's time to use it. What's yeah. he talking about? Yeah, the docks. Use it on who? Yeah, on uh, Dugan. I think he's very oh, clearly yeah. saying we're going to kill Dugan. Yes. So Terry, at the beginning of the movie, we can believe had some level of deniability yeah. about whether or not Joey was going to get killed. Right. And then he realizes that, oh, he was part of Joey's death. Right. At this moment, he has no 
way of hiding from the fact that Johnny Friendly and his brother yeah. are talking about killing Dugan, a guy who he just said had guts. Yep. You know where you're going? Back in the hole. No more cushy job in the law, but it's down in the hole with a sweat gang till you learn your lesson, see? And then he does what he said. He pinches, he does that slap on his face. And Charlie turns to his brother and says, wise up. Wise up! And they drive away, leaving Terry alone. On the one hand, you have Edie saying she wants more, much more, much more. And on the other, you have Charlie saying, wise up. And you have Father Barry who's saying, I'm going to go all the way down the line. And Dugan, who has guts. And you have Johnny Friendly who says, you're going to be with the sweaty longshoremen until you learn your place. And that's it. That's the devil and the angel Mm -hmm. on Terry Malloy's shoulders. That's the pressure. That's the choice he is facing. And as Terry Malloy goes to face that choice, I think we are going to end part one of our exploration of On the Waterfront. As always, we want to hear what you think, not just of On the Waterfront, but of Ilya Kazan, of method acting, of Marlon Brando, of the world of the unions, of corruption, of power, and of the various angels and devils we have on our shoulders. So let's have some discussion. Maybe we'll put some questions up on our Facebook page. Just do a search for The Cinephiles. If you want to support the show by picking a film, which wasn't picked like On the Waterfront, (laughs) you could do so by going to patreon.com slash The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, where we'd love to have you leave your reviews. It's really, really important for the show. If you don't subscribe there, you can visit us on YouTube. And I have a YouTube question for everyone. For those of you who listen to the show through as a podcast, every single week you get the preview of the show, Mm. which tells you on usually the Monday or Tuesday before what episode is coming up. We haven't been placing those previews on YouTube. Mm. Would you YouTube viewers like to get the previews every week? Let us know. We can start putting them up. Mm. Uh, if you and, and maybe a good place to let us know on that is leave some comments on YouTube and we'll read them there. Um, you can buy On the Waterfront or any other movie we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net. And you can reach me on Twitter as SR Morris, on Instagram as SR Morris1. John, where can they reach you? You can always reach me at The Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. See all the things I'm doing there. You know I post about everything. So there you go. And that is it for this week. We will come back next week. Back to Hoboken, New Jersey, to see what Terry Malloy does on the waterfront. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.